stratosphere, ionosphere, and the other ones. Geese don't think of it as honking. Regular ivy should be called non-poison ivy. Pictures don't do a sinkhole justice. There's more to wheat than bread. Which animal has the softest horn? Most fish fear heights. I thought hang gliding was a bigger deal. Minerals hold many secrets. So many stars! Hello, and welcome to the 32nd episode of Out of All Doors. I'm your host, Adam Drent, and Out of All Doors is a podcast uh, that... Let me check my notes here. Ah, yes, it's a podcast that remember to come up with a new way to describe Out of All Doors for the introduction. I'm going on a very out-of-all-doors-style vacation soon. I'm going to be in Rocky Mountain National Park in the American state of Colorado. True out-of-all-doors women and out-of-all-doors men will have already heard of Colorado, of course. But for those of you who haven't, well, it may interest you to know that the thing that it's most famous for is the same thing that's being dwarfed by the Huge Pop in the Huge Pop logo that my friend Aaron designed in, like, 2010, I think. Mountains. Yes, there are mountains where we're going. At least there were last time I checked. But that's one of the good things about mountains. It takes a very long time for them to go away. So I fully expect for them to still be there when I get there in a few days. And honestly, if something had happened to them and the mountains were now gone, I'm pretty sure I would have heard about it. If not on the news, then I think Matt would have told me at least, because his parents live near there. I'm not sure I should have said that, so please don't drive to the general region of Rocky Mountain National Park and try to find Matt's parents. And if you do, please don't bring up the time Matt and I ruined the NHS ceremony that his mom had organized. It's still a sore subject. Anyway, my family has spent a lot of time in Rocky Mountain National Park over the years, and there are a few locations that have special meaning for us. Locations that my parents' generation visited in their youths, and which they then introduced my generation to in our youths, and which my generation is now introducing to the next generation. And, backing up, it should be noted that my grandparents' generation was the generation that introduced these locations to my parents' generation. My parents' generation did not discover these locations on their own. If they had, they probably would have named the locations after things they liked in the 60s and 70s. So there would now be lakes named things like... Like Lake Slinky, and there would be mountains named things like Mount 70s Clothes. Fortunately, the generation that did discover these locations, whichever generation that happened to be, was much better at naming things. They thought about each name they chose with the utmost of consideration, ensuring that each name has a fascinating story behind it. Each name is bursting with meaning. So I thought that it would be fun to use the introduction to tell you some of my family's favorite Rocky Mountain National Park locations and how they got their names. And if I think that something would be fun, I often do it, as long as doing it is within my means. And nothing could be further within my means than doing a segment on my own podcast, which requires no new research, because I already know all the information I'm imparting, because I've been to the locations, I've read the informational plaques, and I'm pretty sure I remember what they said. And I'm also a very intuitive person. In many ways, when you go to a beautiful natural location, that location will tell you its name, even without a plaque. So that's probably where I got some of this information, too. 
Bear Lake. That's bear spelled B-E-A-R, thank you, so stop snickering. The lake is naked, though. Please stop snickering. The lake actually derives its name from the fact that the first man who discovered it worried that if he named it after himself, the area bears would think he was implying that he had discovered it before any bears had. He worried that, aroused to intense anger by this insult, the bears would kill him, tear him apart, eat the parts of him that they thought looked good for eating, and then leave the parts of him that they didn't think looked as good for eating for scavengers. So was naming the lake Bear Lake an act of cowardice or an act of good sense? The Alluvial Fan. This is one of those pretentious names that doesn't actually mean anything. It's just supposed to sound sophisticated and mysterious. Imagine a film called The Alluvial Fan and how insufferable its writer-slash-director would have to be. Trail Ridge Road. This location was named on a dare. The dare was to come up with a name for something that was just three fairly bland five-letter nouns in a row. Road, at the time of the naming, was spelled with an E on the end, but that was dropped when a pedantic Boy Scout pointed out that it was incorrect. Unfortunately, this meant that the man who named the road retroactively failed to meet the conditions of the dare. But he was long dead, as were those who had issued the dare, so he suffered no consequences that we're aware of. A medium was hired to attempt to contact his spirit to see if he had suffered any consequences for retroactively failing to meet the conditions of the dare in the afterlife, but the medium was revealed to be a fraud when it turned out that the spirit he was talking to was actually an alien. Rainbow Curve This portion of Trail Ridge Road is so named because, while it does not curve at all, the pavement has been painted with two colors of the rainbow, indigo and brown. Sprague Lake. Now this story is rich. It's solid gold. A man named Albert Sprague was on his deathbed. He begged and pleaded with his friends not to name a lake after him, but they did it anyway, completely ruining his last day on earth, which he spent in a state that doctors of the time called a pout coma. Long's Peak. The most famous mountain in Rocky Mountain National Park, and the first 14er I ever climbed. Long's Peak is actually a Colorado phrase meaning, Long possesses this peak. Emerald Lake. A popular game at the time of this lake's naming was to find a new lake, and then have a formal debate as to whether or not the lake had an emerald in it. Then, after sometimes weeks of debate, a team of divers would be dispatched to thoroughly search the lake. If they found an emerald, those who argued that they would were declared the winners. If they did not find an emerald in the lake, then a second debate was held to determine if the diver's search had been thorough enough. If the judges determined that those arguing that it had not been thorough enough were the most persuasive, then the divers had to continue their search for an emerald, even if it meant using up all of their vacation time for a year. If, after what was sometimes many debates as to whether the divers had been thorough enough, it was finally decided that they had been thorough enough and still no emerald was found, then those who had argued that no emerald would be found were declared the winners. Anyway, this game was played at Emerald Lake in Rocky Mountain National Park, but I don't know if there was an emerald in it or not. If only there were some clue. Nymphs are mythological nature spirits imagined as beautiful women in diaphanous robes that hide among the trees, frolic in the meadows, and move as silently as a breeze. What any of that could possibly have to do with any lake, much less this lake, has baffled lake name experts for decades. Most lake name experts just throw up their hands when it comes to Nymph Lake. Dream Lake so named because the woman who discovered it actually saw it in a dream first that she took as a sign that she should seek out the lake, and that's what she did. 
The dream also told her that if she bathed in the lake, she would be granted immortality. But while she was bathing, someone or something stole her purse, which the dream had not warned her about. She was granted immortality, though. But at what cost? Estes Cone. You'd never guess it from the name, but this is actually a mountain. There's a town nearby called Estes Park, so that explains the first part. But what about Cone? Does this darn mountain form some kind of means of conveying scoops of ice cream to your darn mouth without the ice cream getting all over your darn hand? Well, yes, if you put a scoop of ice cream on top of Estes Cone, and then you also get on top of Estes Cone, and you get down on your hands and knees and lick at the ice cream until it's gone, then Estes Cone will sort of fulfill the basic function of a traditional ice cream cone. So that, combined with its close proximity to Estes Park, gives us the name. Pretty cool. Jellystone Campground. It's named after the fictional national park in Yogi Bear cartoons, which in turn derives its name from a play on the name of the real national park, Yellowstone, which in turn derives its name from a woman named Clara Jellystone, whose surname was considered too silly to work as the name of a national park. Also, few people know this, but in the Yogi Bear cartoons, the character Boo Boo's middle name is also Boo. Let's begin, shall we? We split up. Each of us goes our own direction. We go this way and that way, scattering. We'll probably never see each other again. If we do, it will only be by coincidence, and even so, how likely is it that we will recognize each other? We're already beginning to forget what each other looks like, and it's only been a few seconds. Do some of us have our first gray hair? Do some of us have flat feet? Are some of us wearing punk clothes, such as an ugly belt and a shirt that says authority on it, but there's a red circle around it, and there's a line through it, but there's also, and this is the confusing part, but there's also the word authority written on the red circle itself, sort of following the upper curve of the circle like the word Goodyear does on a tire? Do any of us have little button noses? Do any of us have dimples that make photographers shriek in ecstasy? We are each on our own paths now. We are each pursuing our own destinies and our own fashions. We walk for days. We walk into darkness. And we all bump our heads together because our individual paths have converged in the greatest single example of the kind of location we have been entering for years. We sense, you see, their presence. We have entered the battery. The Bat Trapper never earned his title. He declared himself the Bat Trapper without having trapped a single bat to that point in his life. He would go on to trap zero bats. So when I call him the Bat Trapper, realize that I do so only because that is how he is known. But I want to be clear, he never trapped a bat. The Bat Trapper tried to trap a fruit bat first. He intended to fill a cage with fruit. He hoped that a bat would fly into the cage to eat the fruit, whereupon he would slam the cage door closed, trapping the bat inside. But he had trouble with the fruit. First of all, while he was at the grocery store, he accidentally selected a cantaloupe so rotten that when he attempted to pick it up, his hand went right through it. The rotten cantaloupe was displayed on top of a crate made of rotten wood, so when his hand went through the cantaloupe, it went through the crate too. And the crate had been placed where it was to conceal a hole in the floor. So when the man's hand went through the cantaloupe and the crate, he fell into the hole. 
When he was finally rescued by a curious bag boy, attracted by what he thought was a free pair of flailing legs with the potential to be a high earner on the resale market, the bat trapper was given a free cantaloupe for his trouble. He took the cantaloupe home, cut it into chunks, and flung it into the cage. But he had cut the pieces too small, and they all fell through the gaps in the cage, and his cats swarmed around his ankles and devoured all the cantaloupe, and later vomited all of the cantaloupe they had eaten through the open sunroof of his car. Meanwhile, the area bats remained oblivious to the bat trapper's scheme because it had been so, so, so far from working. The bat trapper tried again. This time, he thought to bait his trap with live insects. But every insect he caught willed itself dead because they all preferred death to spending time with the bat trapper. They didn't know his intentions for them. They just knew they hated him. So the bat trapper thought maybe he could bait his trap with dead insects. But he forgot to take all the dead insects out of his pockets of his jeans before his wife put them through the wash. When the bat trapper's wife opened the washing machine to move the laundry to the dryer, what she witnessed therein was a vision of horror. The bat trapper hoped she wouldn't know who was to blame, but she did know who was to blame, instinctively and immediately. The bat trapper never got around to designing the trap for which the insects were to be the bait. The area bats, of course, knew nothing of this attempt, if you can even call it that, because it was even further from being realized when it failed than the first attempt had been. The bat trapper tried a third time. This time his idea was like flypaper, but bigger and stickier and hanging at the entrance of a cave. He only got as far as trying to look at a piece of flypaper under a microscope to figure out how they made it so sticky. Of course, he zoomed in too far and the flypaper stuck to the microscope's lens. It doesn't seem like that alone should have been enough to foil this attempt at trapping bats, but it did somehow. It goes without saying that the bats were blissfully ignorant of this scheme, although maybe they would have liked knowing about it. Maybe they would have gotten a good laugh out of it. The bat trapper tried yet again. He had a dream about a bat trap. In the dream, the trap didn't work at all, but when he woke up, he thought that if he wrote down everything he remembered about the trap from his dream, that he'd be able to modify it to make it work in real life. But the details of the dream were fading quickly. He found a paper in the drawer of his nightstand, but could not find a pen. He woke up his wife and asked if he could borrow a pen from her. She did not have a pen and thought the request was a stupid one. He asked her if he could borrow a pencil then. She told him that she did not have any writing utensils on her because she was in bed. The bat trapper's dream was fading fast. Already, the only thing he could remember about the trap was that it required access to a full-sized active volcano, which was one of the things he had definitely intended to change about the plan in real life. Sad, he crumpled up the paper and threw it across the room. He didn't feel like he'd thrown the paper wad very hard at all, and even if he had, it was just a paper wad. Yet somehow his wife still blamed him when the paper wad smashed through the wall and left a wad-sized hole between their bedroom and the master bathroom. When the bat trapper tried to fix the hole, he got his arms stuck in it, making him more of a bat trapper trapper than he ever was a bat trapper. The bats knew nothing about any of this. They continued to live lives of fascinating and secretive dignity. The bat trapper made one final attempt. His plan was to hire a bat herder to herd a bat into the cardboard box in which his window air conditioner had come. But he couldn't find any bat herders. He looked all over the internet to no avail. One of the sites he visited while looking for a bat herder gave his computer a virus. The virus made it so that no matter what the bat trapper typed into the search bar, he was only given results for world record temperature changes in a 24-hour period, which is actually a very interesting thing to research. I highly recommend it. 
You'll learn a lot about Chinook winds, but nothing about bat herders. Anyway, the bat trapper got so frustrated with his computer that he clicked out of his browser with a slightly more forceful click than was strictly necessary, and with an expression of displeasure on his face. I'll herd the bats myself, he was heard to mutter. Later, his ribcage was found inside the cardboard box in which the window air conditioner had come. The bats, of course, knew nothing about it, any of them. We decide we might as well stick together. If all of our separate destinies are actually going to end up being the same destinies, then why travel alone? If nothing else, it saves a bundle on gas money. And we know we haven't mentioned use of a car in any of our previous accounts of our entrances and exits of batteries, but we do often use a car, usually right up to the point where we begin the narrative for you. We take turns driving. It's a loose rotation. And we're using the word car loosely here. It could be any kind of wheeled vehicle, lest you think this is a clue as to how many of us there are. You wish. We nod our respect to the bats around us, and then, as what we assume is the same group as before, but which very well may have lost or gained members, we leap. The battery. Regarding the dawn. This is the segment of the podcast that we normally discuss nature photography, but this week we have a very special treat for you. That's right. We've decided that we should cast our net a little bit wider and catch a little more outdoor art to pull in for all to feast on. And feast we shall. For this month, we will be expanding our outdoor related art consumption to include music. That's right, we will be reviewing a music album. And not just any album. Oh no, we have a real beauty for you guys. A little gem called Get Ye Up by a certain The Mispronouncer. What? Who's that? I don't think I recognize this artist's name. Why, Ben, don't you know? This is the rapper name of our very own Adam Drent. What? My, my cousin Adam is a rapper? Get right out of town! No, 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 it's true. Here, let me explain. Adam Drent has been making music for a number of years and releasing albums under the pseudonym of The Mispronouncer, and it just so happens that it is rap music that he's producing. This album called Get Ye Up is his fourth album, and it is a delightful concept album about the American West. Wow, I had no idea. That sounds amazingly relevant to the outdoor theme of the podcast, and it should fit right in. I can't wait. Can we start reviewing it right now? (laughs) Absolutely. Let's go. Okay. First of all, let's just get this out of the way. Adam's vocal stylings and tones on this album are remarkable for someone who grew up in the manner that he did. Agreed. I mean, you would never suspect that he grew up a basketball-obsessed youth with a penchant for unconventional hairstyles in Indiana. No way. His voice transcends that upbringing almost from the very first handful of lines. And moving on quickly from there, we should probably just get this out of the way right from the start. I mean, just right away. We love this album. Oh, man. Do we ever. It is so great. Yeah, it's great. Just great. I mean, it's one of the greatest great albums I've ever heard. Yeah, maybe the best of the greats. Maybe. You know, I'm not sure we should even leave that option open like that. Let's just let's just make the call right now, officially. You want to? I do. I think it's the best of the greats. There it is. 
The best. It's the best. It's the best of the greatest in terms of the greatest albums of, well, all time? Uh, yeah, I would say all time. Of all time. It's just so great. It's so great. And that's a minute. That's enough. Uh, that ought to be long enough for him to stop listening now. Yeah, about time. Man, that was painful. Okay, let's do this. All right, listeners. Listen up. Here is the real review of the Mispronouncers album called Get Ye Up. The thing is, this album is so bad, I'm not even sure where we should start. I mean, okay, let's just start with the the structure and theme. Concept album? Okay, Pink Floyd. What is this, the 70s? No, it's not, Roger Waters. Come on. Nuff said. And besides that, moving on from there, it is very well known among even the most ignorant of musicians that the Howe and Franklin Research Group has proven scientifically and completely objectively that the optimal number of songs for an album about a region of the country or continent in the Northern Hemisphere is 11. But he couldn't even be bothered to do the slightest amount of research into what his listeners could stomach in one setting, so he just rams 20 stinking songs down our throats. Okay, and let's move on quickly, because there's so much bad stuff to cover here, I don't even know if we're going to get it all in. Let's start with the first song called Overlook. I've already told you that the theme here is the American West, and most musicians would want you to discover that yourselves as you work your way through the album. But not Adam. The first thing he does is add some ridiculous tinkly-winkly honky-tonk piano riff right off the bat to make sure that we know we're talking about the American West. I mean, how clumsy can you get? I know that Adam tends towards cliches, but this is just beyond the pale. Well, he is kind of a big walking cliche, so... Right, right. We should have seen this coming. All right, the next song, Dime Store Novel Legends, is it just really does seem like Adam just bought some dime store novels and then just copy and pasted the back cover summaries into a word file and then just put that over some music. Next song, You're Nothing. They're just giving this land away. I wish I could just give this album away. I tried. No takers. I had a garage sale and I had a big table full of free copies of this. I sold everything in my garage, but no one took a single free copy of this album. Ouch. Yeah. Look, I mean, the first words are, oh, pioneers. Who are you? MC Willa Cather? Okay, so then we go right into Dutch Can't Sleep. Now, a great concept album can usher the listener smoothly from one place to the next. One concept to the next. One emotion to the next. One idea to the next. But this, this is just ridiculous. This is so jarring to go from the Homestead Act, the Homesteaders, and the Dust Bowl smack into, I, I don't know what this is, and... Attempt at a lullaby to get Dutch to go to sleep so that he'll stop complaining? I don't know. If that's the goal, well, it certainly does succeed in putting me to sleep after yanking me abruptly out of the flow of the story that he's trying to tell with this album. So many of the songs are just like lists. They're like lists of things or stuff or whatever. And and this is just like a list of examples of how this character Dutch is a walking zombie, I guess. Yeah, he's just basically a eternally cursed insomniac, and we are forced to listen to this bizarre grocery list of examples of why he can't get any rest. Agonizing. Next is a song called Winter Ascent. I think it's about Adam and some people walking up a very treacherous mountain in extremely cold temperatures and being in complete agony and life-threatening danger the whole time. Oh, really? I thought it was about the listener trying to make it through this album. No, no, you're, you're right. You're right. Good call. That's clearly the right interpretation. I know about this time I started to feel some numbness in my extremities. 
And then comes King Amanda or Ranger Marmot. I can't remember which. No, no, no. It's King Marmot and then Ranger Amanda. No, you know what? That's exactly right. Because these two songs are completely interchangeable. One song is about him worshiping a marmot. And the other one is him worshiping this lady called Amanda the Ranger. I mean, I'm assuming that one of them had more fur than the other one, but I'll never know. It's not like he helped me differentiate between the two in these songs. They're basically interchangeable and forgettable. Next. The next one is Delang in the West. Um, I kind of like this one. Yeah, I kind of did too, actually. Um, Okay, next is Acoustic. Uh, See above list comment. Yeah, it's another list. A long list of Indian names. And that's it. Next! Okay, this song is called um, Filthm... Is it... Well, it's spelled F-I-L-T-H-M apostrophe N. I think his keyboard got stuck. And poor Dutch Who Can't Sleep is trotted out for a guest spot on this song. And guess what? Despite his lack of sleep, he's the most refreshing and enjoyable thing on this entire album. Yeah. And, you know, as my grandfather was fond of saying, and Adam stole this for one of his rap lyrics, if you ain't a quarter Dutch, you ain't much. But in this case, if you ain't 100% Dutch you aren't worth having on your concept album about the American West. Agreed. Nice work, Dutch. You can come back and visit Adam's recording studio anytime. Next song is a song called The Miswhelmed. Well, this song could be the title track for the album, actually. Yeah, pretty much. Maybe we should uh, have called this episode Regarding the Yawn. Oh, nice one. Up top. (laughs) Woo! (laughs) All right, next. Uh, The Tale of Calvin the Calf. This song can be summed up best by the immortal words of that great jester of our time, Pee Wee Herman. It's so funny I forgot to laugh. (laughs) Uh, Uh, There's nothing quite like having someone go on and on about that joke you had to be there to get, but never even begin to explain what the joke was. Painful at best. The next song is called Long Arm. This is a song that walks you through every detail of a shoegazing Wild West Sheriff's thoughts and insecurities. Wait. Yes, Dwayne? Weren't we just in a tent listening to people laugh about a calf story that we were not privy to? Yes, Dwayne. Thank you for proving my point so succinctly. Another jarring transition that only serves to disorient the listener even more. Who's steering the ship anyway? It's starting to feel like Jason and not Adam is at the helm. Well, I suspect that Jason's rampant drug use would explain a lot of the artistic choices made on this album. Okay. Next is called I'm an Old Cowhand. Um... I don't even want to talk about this one. Okay by me. Uh, next is Crowbait. Wait, now this, this is actually very appropriate for this album because this song describes in brutal, excruciating detail what it is like to crawl across a desert and basically be cooked alive, which is exactly what the listener feels at this point after like 17 or 18 songs. Hence what I'm feeling like after having to review this many songs. Yeah, you know... We don't have enough. We're just, we're just running out of time. This is too painful. Yeah. Let's just summarize and be done with this. Yeah, we've put the listeners through enough already. Okay. All right, everyone. So we reviewed 17 songs out of uh, tw- this 20-song-long train wreck. Dwayne and I cannot say enough bad things about this album. So just um, skip the album and go anywhere but here to get your music fixed. Just just anywhere. Yeah, any sort of punk rock would be a great start. Well, I mean, uh, maybe just... Any uh, kind of punk rock. Well, just, let's just say any album but this one. Let's leave it open for them to, you know... Try well, to I think, think I can think something by the uh, Descendants or the Plasmatics would or be Dwayne, good. Dwayne, Dwayne, anything you could listen to. I mean, even the Spice Girls w- would help keep your lunch down easier than this. Yeah, okay, I... 
I can go with that. I All mean, right, folks. Yeah. Then, then that's it for this month. This has been regarding the yawn. <laughs> uh, and go and broaden your nature-loving horizons by listening to some music. Any music. As long as it's not the mispronouncer. Exactly. Bye. This month, Gentleman's Mills is selling road trip essentials, the most essential products and services for road trips of all kinds, from family vacations to girls' trips to boys' trips to co-ed trips. As long as it's on the road, these are your trip's essentials. Cup Holder. Our specially trained Gentleman's Mills cup holder will ride in your car or van and hold on to your cup with his prosthetic hand. The cup holder requires two seats, space for his two large suitcases, and he blows a loud whistle when he needs a bathroom break. Cups with liquid in them cost extra for the cup holder to hold. Stinker's Sidecar. Is one of your road trip comrades wearing out their welcome in the car? Banish that stinker to the Stinker's Sidecar and let them consider their behavior in noisy solitude. Road Trip Mix CD. This scratched CDR contains a full 80 minutes of heavily compressed MP3s and won't play in most current car CD players. But if it does play, the gentlemen think they put some Our Lady Peace on there. Snack for All Muffin. This huge muffin will meet the in-car snack needs of four people on an eight-day road trip with plenty left over to throw away when you get home. 99 bottles of beer on the wall lyric sheet. Distribute these to everyone in the car so no one feels left out of the fun. The Hats License Plate Game Tips for Success Pamphlet. Include such invaluable advice as circle the same parking lot multiple times and complain endlessly about states that don't require front plates. Trailer Top Carrier. Already got a car top carrier and a trailer but still need more mobile storage space? The Gentleman's Mills Trailer Top Carrier has you covered. It's better than adding a second trailer. Chain Restaurant Pronunciation Guide. You'll be saying their names constantly, even if you're just idly reading signs for the edification of everyone else in the car. Best to know how to say them right. Or, if you're a clown, the Gentleman's Mills Guide provides several suggested mispronunciations, such as Berg King and Wenders. Motel Soap. Now when you stay at a motel, you can choose between the motel soap the motel provides and the motel soap you bought from Gentleman's Mills. Honk Retaliator. This sophisticated device gives your horn a long, loud honk whenever it senses a honk within two miles of your vehicle. With its incredibly sensitive sensors, other sounds have been known to trigger Honk Retaliator, including the coughs of passing motorists in vehicles driving in the opposite direction. GMS. Forget all about GPS, this is GMS. The GM stands for Gentleman's Mills, and the S stands for the same thing that the S stands for in GPS. Seatbelt seasoning. Coats your seatbelt in a layer of savory spices that you'll be more than eager to lick off of your fingers. To be clear, this product is intended to encourage you to use your seatbelt, but there's nothing to prevent you from pouring it all over your forearm and just licking it off of that. Speed Bump Ramp. 
Why reduce your speed and bump when you can floor it and fly? Whenever you see a speed bump where you'd rather ramp, stop your car, get the ramp out, position it in front of the speed bump, get back into the car, back up, drive fast, hit the ramp, soar through the air, land safely, stop the car, back up, pick up the ramp, load it back into the car, and drive on. Auto Doctor. This set of syringes featuring various life-saving medicines is to be placed on the seat compartment for easy access. Just be careful not to get poked unless you truly want the medicine provided and make sure to select the correct needle based on your ailment. Roadkill Deodorizer. Ever been driving along and happened to hit an animal or happened to smell an animal previously hit stinking up the place? Why, that's Roadkill. Reduce the impact to your delicate nostrils with Roadkill Deodorizer. Simply pull over next to the Roadkill, get out of your car, and spray the Roadkill with the deodorizer. Now you can breathe again. Backseat Bed Sit. Are you riding along for hours in the back seat? Aren't you sleepy? Skip uncomfortable seated sleeping positions and lay down in comfort with backseat bed sit, which, once installed, allows you to stretch out fully reclined in the back seat. Note, to fully extend, backseat bed sit requires the driver's seat to be pushed all the way forward. Total Recall Road Trip Edition. This specially designed edition of the Action Classic will play in any pre-mounted car DVD system. For safety purposes, the disc will stop playing anytime the car is in motion. Cool Summer Real Arm Breeze Lover. Love the laid-back look of having your arm hanging out the window, catching the summer breeze as you cruise across America, but hate the feeling of air against your delicate arm and hand? The Cool Summer Real Arm Breeze Lover is a prosthetic plastic arm that attaches to your closed window and flaps happily in the breeze, as carefree and wild as your own arm. The Insect Maximizer Splat Gun, trademark. What's a better road trip souvenir than a windshield covered in bug guts? This new device from Gentleman's Mills inserts the base of your car's windshield. Special sensors detect any insects that hit your windshield, triggering the splat gun to match that splat with an even bigger splat. For those drivers not getting the insect splatter they crave, the splat gun can be set to fully automatic, blasting your windshield with a thick film of insect gore. Fun Key Boy. This small plastic doll can be attached to your car's keyhole, giggling as if tickled every time you poke the doll in order to start the car. You won't be able to help giggling either, and soon enough the whole car will be giggling, giggling, giggling along for thousands of miles. Summer Chains. Even though it's summer and temperatures are typically very hot, you never know when you'll encounter a stray patch of black ice, and you don't want to kill your entire family as you slide into the surrounding desert to your doom. These summer chains are to be placed on your tires at all times in order to prevent any mayhem. The constant clanking and sparks flying lets you know that you're safe. Fronter. Maxed out the storage space in your trailer and still need that most precious commodity of all, more room? The new Fronter storage container attaches to the front of your car via specialized hitch, allowing you to store more as you drive along. The grill, the dresser, heck, bring the whole kit and caboodle. It all fits in the Fronter. Hello, Adam. Came in reporting in again. I have a very different report for you and the listener this month. After my interview with Professor Jim last time, he invited me to watch one of the fake brawls or performances, as they call them, between the hobos and the hermits. 
He told me it would be a regional semifinal match between a local favorite hermit group and some up-and-coming hobo troop who were climbing the ranks quickly and that everyone was very excited about this match. I didn't see how I could turn that down, so, uh, so I went. And in the course of being introduced to a few of the people present, I was reacquainted with one of my traveling partners from my time on the rails. Ovarian Jim was there, and, much to my surprise, I learned she was actually some sort of a commentator for the event. After viewing the, uh, the match, I decided that perhaps I would just let the listeners hear the recording of Ovarian Jim and her partner calling the match because it, it can't defy its explanation anyways. I mean, some people acted like they were killing each other, but that's really about it. Anyways, here's the recording. Hello, fight fans. Welcome to Fight Night. I am Ovarian Jim. And I am Hermit Tony. And once again, we have put aside our differences to meet up in the press box and call the shots as we see it for all of the hobos out there listening in on the conference call line. And I guess, as usual, my fellow hermits can't hear me, us, so maybe if any of you hobos could just... Well, you know, pass on the score if you happen to see any of us. <laughs> Not if we smell you first. Ha <laughs> ha! I kid, I kid. Ha ha ha. Yes, uh, you always say that. Oh, you know I'm just messing with you. Well, you... So here we are, folks. The second semifinal round of the Eastern Wood and Track Division, and the winners of this fight tonight will go on to play the winners of some other fights and then fight some more winners until eventually there is a loser. That's right, Jim. And who those losers will be is anyone's guess. Well, I'm guessing that it will be as big a surprise to them as it is to you and I, Tony. I'm not sure you're right, as always, Jim. Well, whoever loses will not get the Pinecone Trophy this year, which of course not only comes with the fame and the trophy, but millions of actual pinecones that... Oh, it looks like we've got some movement on the field here, folks. Uh, yes, yes, yeah, here come our teams now. My home team from here in the north side of the woods, the Methuselahs. They are the local favorites, it must be said, but that might be because they have never had an away game, ever. What? Why do we always have to come play in your... Oh, yeah. Never mind. And here come the hobos, the boxcar barnacles. Ah, and the barnacles look pretty excited to be here. They really are building up a sweat warming up. Uh, no, Tony. They're just walking, and the hermits are just sitting on the ground. Um, well... You hermits really don't do much, do you? I mean... <laughs> well, I mean, we don't run after trains or anything. Oh, you know? here we go! I see the referee is telling the four or five fans that have turned up today to step back from the playing field. Uh, for those of you new to the sport, let me quickly summarize the rules as the teams are getting ready. Oh, not... All the rules. I mean, take all the mystery out of it, why don't you? Oh, of, co of course not. Just the ones we can cover in a, in a minute or so. Uh, here we go. <clears throat> Two teams, hermits and hobos. 25 men or women to a team. One field. Everyone tries to kill each other, but not really. And whoever pretends to kill the others better wins. Uh, no one dies. That's it. Very simply, add the 895-page rule book to those right there, and you have it in a very, very simple, easy-to-understand-not-confusing-at-all-nutshell. Uh, and I see now that the referee is waving his dirty underwear flag above his head to signal that the teams have to get their players ready. Uh, no, Tony, he's just waving his dirty underwear around. Oh, uh, m my mistake. But it does look like the teams are getting out their weapons and stretching. Oh, oh my. Do my eyes deceive me or is Hermit Marcus brandishing a two by four with some sort of rudimentary spike on it? No, you are in fact deceived. That is a broken wine bottle. 
Oh. But it does look like the Hermits are switching it up a bit today. I see a lot of new weapons on the field, and perhaps they thought to throw the hobos off their game a bit. Oh! Can he? Wow. Ouch. What? Okay, we just... It looks like a little pre-match tension is erupting, and it looks like Hermit Angelo and Hermit Frederick may have pushed or tripped Gimpy James, and he actually landed on the ground kind of, well... Hard. uh, It looks like a pretty serious bump he got there. Thank goodness he didn't have any keys in his pocket there. His game could have been over before it even started. Looks like the ref was looking the other way and doesn't have a clue what's going on here. It seems like the barnacles have noticed, though, and are not very happy about it. Well, can you blame them? I mean, someone actually got hurt, and no one was even pretending yet. Boy, this is not going to make the fight any less fighty. If the barnacles didn't want to pretend to hurt the Methuselahs before, they certainly will want to now. Oh, man, those four or five fans are really feeling the tensions now. You can see them really getting wound up. You can? Well, yeah. Can't you see them shifting anxiously from one foot to the other? Uh, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Boy, look at them go. It's already turning out to be a real nail biter, and we haven't even seen a single fake punch thrown yet. Oh, no. They're probably just gnawing at flea bites, I, I think. Ah, uh, yes. Probably true. All right. That's probably more than enough of the pre-show. Let's, uh, let's give the listeners a taste of the main event. Here's a bit of that. Oh, man, that was one of the best club swings that nearly contacted with a knee that I have ever seen. Agreed. That was very nearly painful and potentially pretend crippling. Todd the Toad should get big points for that one. As the half approaches and we see the hermits are really out in front with one decapitation, five stabbings, and four bludgeons. If the hobos don't pick up the pace, they will win by sudden death. What? Because we will all die of boredom. (laughs) Uh, Oh, I... You just... Stop. Oh, come on. That was funny. No, really. I'm warning you. I I just... Wow, looks like the two of the hobo players have turned the tables on Hermit Phoebe. Wow, look at that. I think that's uh, Ruddy Bob and Harmonica Jim that have pounced on and pretend curb stomped Hermit Phoebe. She is looking very fake dead right now. And just as the clock takes down to the half, what a great play for the hobos. Great timing. Now all they need to do is keep killing people right up until there's no one left and they will have this thing in the bag. Yes, Jim. I really think that would be a pretty solid strategy at this point in the game. And there's the half. Boy, howdy, we had some great action here so far, but the hobos are going to need to keep their bloodbath momentum going if they hope to overcome the hermit's big body lead. As the players head to the sidelines, let's look at some of those key players in the first half, shall we, Jim? Right! All right, well, first off, with that big, flashy, fake decapitation in the first quarter, is the Methuselah's big, hulking brawler, their powerhouse of their offense, Hermit Irene. This 89-year-old from former Cookville, Tennessee, librarian, had enough with all the talking and gum-chewing one day and walked away from her career and family to live in the woods and practice her overhead two-handed axe chop that we saw in perfect form today. And next, the Methuselah's two big stabbers for this fight are Hermits Matt and Vladimir. Matt hails from... Well, okay, all of the hermits are from Tennessee. We're in Tennessee, and they all live near here. Matt Matt is a former video game programmer. Vladimir was a corporate raider in the 80s until they heard the call of the wild. Matt racked up two pretend stabbing deaths with his pitchfork, and Vladimir caught three of the boxcar barnacles by surprise with his broken bottle kidney punch. And uh, let's give those hobos their moment in the spotlight, shall we? Even though they are trailing behind, we had some pretty solid footwork and a lot of hustle out there from the barnacles today, which is what we have come to expect from them with 
their new offensive coordinator, Billy the Scamp. Of course, the big play of the half was that last-minute tag-team fake curb-stomping by Ruddy Bob and Harmonica Jim that they perpetrated on Hermit Phoebe. Yes, and uh, neither of these road dogs are known from their creativity on the field, so I suspect this might have a lot to do with Billy the Scamp's work with the team leading up to the semifinals. True, but the rails have a way of teaching you things, Tony. You wouldn't know since you never leave your cave, but it's a big, scary, curb-stomping world out there. Oh, uh, well, yes. I I mean, I guess I wouldn't know about any of that. And then, of course, we had all those bludgeonings. Lots of fake blunt force trauma today, which is always a big crowd pleaser. Well, we should highlight just one. <laughs> and I bet you know which one I have in mind, Jim. I do indeed. It has to be the big beatdown by Hermit Stacy on Flea Bitten Friend. Man, that was a brutal one. I mean, I know Stacy was just using a spray-painted foam pool noodle for her bludgeon, but still... Wow. Agreed. I mean, major, major point maker for the Hermits. And what would you say was Fleabit and Fred's list of fake injuries after that one? Oh, man, I don't know. Lots of them. Yeah, but I think probably he had a fake fractured skull, maybe even some fake broken rib. Would you think a femur fracture as well? Oh, I wouldn't even want to hazard a guess. Oh, come on. You wouldn't even want to guess? Uh, no, I, I don't think... Come uh, on, just guess. Uh, dang it. Jim, I'm a hermit, not a doctor. Fine, fine. Let's just wrap it up and say Fred is going to have some huge fake hospital bills to pay if he survived that fake death. Which he did. Right. Oh, uh, here we go again, everyone. The referee is calling everyone out to the field again, and we are going to get the second half underway as... Well, Adam, you, uh, you get the idea. It's exactly what we've come to expect from these two groups of clowns. Completely convoluted nonsense wrapped in a veneer of very, very bad acting. In the end... They say the hobos made a comeback and beat the hermits 136 to 132, but they all died, and I knew better than to ask how the scoring system worked, so uh, we can all assume it's pretty ridiculous. I made a few more contacts at the fight, though, and I'll be following up with them for next time, so hopefully I'll be contacting you again soon, Adam. Close every eye, lie all the way down, relax most of your muscles. I hope you can exercise enough discernment to know which muscles you shouldn't relax. You find that you are nude and must get dressed for a scroll in the sun's shine. You are climbing up the inside of a freestanding hollow outfit of clothing. You are in the heel of one of the socks, the left one. You must climb up through the jeans, through the underwear, through the shirt. You must poke your head out through the neck hole of the shirt. Only then will your body fill the outfit, your feet pushing down through the jeans and into the socks, stretching the toes of the socks to the end of the shoes, your hands slipping out through the shirt's long sleeves, your arms filling them, your head rising to the hat, which hangs now suspended in thin air above the shirt. But it's a long way up to that neck hole. You have a laborious journey ahead of you. You hook your fingers into the fabric of the sock and begin to pull yourself up, hand over hand. Let's skip ahead. Having reached the shirt's neck hole, you stick your head through it and feel your body expand to fill the clothes. In fact, your body expands a little too much. Now the clothes are too tight, and the hat is far too small. But you are dressed, and that's what counts. The time has come for your stroll in the sun's shine. Actually, let's skip back first. Something interesting happened while you were climbing the jeans. Climbing up the inside of the jeans, you estimate that you're at about knee level. You hear something. A voice? It sounds muffled, distant. Is it coming from the other leg of the jeans? Is someone else trying to climb up to the neck hole? If so, what will happen if they get there before you? 
Will you be crushed by the rapid expansion of their body to fill the clothes? From already skipping past this point, you know that you don't get crushed, so there's no suspense for your own well-being here, but what happened to that other person? Did they get crushed when your body expanded to fill the clothes? Also, it was never established. Are you tiny? Is the outfit gigantic? Okay, let's skip back to the furthest point yet. You are wearing a hat, shirt, jeans, underwear, socks, and shoes. You are standing upright, poised to go on a stroll in the sun's shine. So here comes the part we were skipping to. The thought crosses your mind that you wish you could separate the part of you that has difficulty relaxing from the part of you that wants so desperately to relax. And that's when you find yourself in the heel of your sock. So what does this mean when taken in conjunction with what else we know? Were you separated into two parts? Are you now one of the two parts of you? If so, which one are you? The one who struggles to relax or the one who desperately wants to relax? If you are the one who struggles to relax, does it make sense to wish that you had not slash will not one slash win the race to the shirt's neck hole? Or, another way to look at it, now that the part of you that desperately wants to relax is gone, maybe you'll be just as happy living on as the part of you that struggles to relax. Without the desire to relax, the fact that you can't won't be an issue. For example, I'm not capable of sliding my tongue backward down my esophagus to retaste a potato I've already eaten, just to double check that it was a potato. But I have no desire to do that, so the inability to do it is no great burden. In fact, it's no burden at all. But a lot of this is conjecture. We don't know what that other voice you thought you heard was, and we don't know that your idle thought about separating parts of yourself had anything to do with you abruptly finding yourself nude in the heel of your own sock. Which, actually, would you be considered nude if you're still technically inside of your own clothes? No one would say that you were nude if you were wearing clothes, say, four sizes too big. So what size disparity must there be between you and your clothes before you can be considered nude while you're inside of them? I think it stands to reason, for example, that if your shirt were the size of the Milky Way and you were inside of it but not wearing anything else, no one would say, no, you're not nude, you're wearing a shirt, but skip ahead. This should be fairly simple to figure out. Well, not the part about your clothes being too tight now. That's a mystery that it's safe to say will never be solved. But you should be able to determine if you are one of two parts of you, or if you are yourself more or less as you were before. Ask yourself this simple question. Do you want to relax? Let's skip back. For the first time in your life, you are conscious of yourself in a way that we would recognize as self-consciousness. I don't know how old you are. You look to be about five. You are about two feet tall. Is that how tall you were when you were five? You are reading a book that says appropriate for ages three to five on its cover. You wouldn't have been reading that book if you were two or six, right? Your parents wouldn't have allowed that. You are aware that you are feeling agitated in some way. You think the word stress because you've heard an adult use that word before when they looked like you feel now. What's the source of this stress? Your mother has told you that you must dress yourself. You must pick out your own outfit and put it on. The only part you aren't expected to handle on your own is the tying of your own shoes. You are standing in front of your dresser, and you are not opening any of its drawers because last night you had a dream that every time someone opens a dresser drawer, a homesick soldier in a foreign land painfully grows a new finger that he or she does not want. So you're torn. Your mother will be angry with you if you don't dress yourself as instructed, but you also don't want to be responsible for hurting and inconveniencing troops. Your mother comes into the room and says, if you don't dress yourself, you'll be late for your first day of eighth grade. 
Oh, okay, so you must not be five. Your mom leaves the room. You know that you have a tough decision to make, but you also know that you won't be able to make it in your current mind state. You know that you need to relax. You want to relax, but how to accomplish this? You close your eyes. You lie down on the floor. You try to think about something peaceful, something soothing. You envision yourself as very, very sunburned. A pack of friendly dogs comes racing over a nearby hill. They surround you and lick you. Everywhere they lick you, your sunburn grows fainter. The dogs lick your sunburn away. To them, your sunburn tastes like the wettest of wet dog food. With your body rid of the sunburn, you can now go back to taking hot showers and encasing your arms in slap bracelets. Feeling soothed, you open your eyes. In your relaxed state, you realize that your dream has no bearing on reality beyond its ability to stir up stress and hinder your decision-making faculties. You dress yourself in a pair of sweatpants that says sweatpants across the butt. Your mother vetoes the outfit. Let's skip ahead. Your stroll in the sunshine has just concluded. Most of your clothing has split at the seams. You want to relax, but you find it difficult, which seems to be an answer to a question, but which also may just be evidence that you relearned how to struggle to relax over the course of your stroll. But would relaxation be as meaningful if it were easily accomplished? Wouldn't you just call it boredom then? Let's skip ahead. Even when you're inside of one or more. Thank you for listening to the 32nd episode of Out of All Doors. Here are this month's writing and performance credits. Matt Martin, Ben Bird, Chris Nichols, Cayman Bird, Kara Bird, and Anson Bayer. The music credits are as follows. Casey By, J.J. Evans, Chris Nichols, and Aaron Eikenberry set up the technical stuff for me. Please rate this podcast. Please write a review. Please subscribe. I also have another podcast called Bedtime Stories and another concluded podcast called One Man's World. You can find them on iTunes or on my website, hugepop.com, where you can also find a link to the music I make as the mispronouncer. I also have a Patreon at patreon.com slash hugepop, where for $1 or more per month, you can get access to exclusive content. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back in a month with the 33rd episode of Out of All Doors.
archival squall material from 2011 with Adam, Matt, and Andy. Guild Wars 2. Yeah, Guild Wars. Taking a game and making it into crap. A, a, people would stop playing it. Squall. They would stop parliament, playing video games, period, if a, that was the only video game they would play. A parliament of giants circled around an oak table developing a nation's first laws. Uh, right of the Titans. You wouldn't play that, Squall? No, I wouldn't. It's a parliament of giants! This isn't just a regular parliament. They're going to be clad in mammoth skins, and when they have... You just think... Alright, so you think of a normal parliament. When they have disagreements, they just frown and they pass measures. A parliament of giants is not like that. They club each yeah, other Lord. over the head with mammoth tusks. Next song... <laughs> Next song. And then, what do you Right of, of the Titans 2. Rights uh, of the Titans. Next song. They amend the previous, the, the Constitution set forth in the first game. You hear that? They're amending the first time. Some of these, ti- okay. listen, some of these giants in the Parliament, the things that went into the first Constitution, these were their pet projects. They, they spent hours, they poured their heart and soul in these, and now it comes time to amend them? They're going to take this as a personal attack. They are going to be so emotionally invested in the amending of their original constitution, there's going to be a bloodbath around that oak table. Every piece of legislation is battle-worthy. That's an excellent tagline. No, what do you think? That's, yeah, that's so, the, that's Guild the Wars 2... Colon. Rights of the Titans. Rights. Oh, wait, no, this is Guild Wars 2. This is Guild Wars 3. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Guild Wars 3, Rights of the Titans, tagline, every piece of legislation is battle-worthy. All right, well, go ahead and make it. See how hard it is to make a video game. Squall, are you you seriously green-lighting this right now? I'm saying if you guys want to make it, you guys make it. I will have no part of it whatsoever because it does not interest me at all. So that's the official green light to get started on... Because we're, we're obviously... I think we're more... At this point, Hair Rundown and I... I can't speak for Tiger, but Hair Rundown and I are more excited by Guild Wars 3 than we are by Guild Wars 2. So we might just skip Guild Wars 2. Do you think anyone will notice that Guild Wars 2 never existed? It's like the 13th floor. Or like a... Uh, a game that doesn't exist, period. Yeah, good, good it's exactly like that. You've nailed it. With that analogy, you have nailed it. It is exactly <laughs> like a game that's never existed, period. I know you don't want to be on the hook for this. I know that if Guild Wars 3 doesn't take off, you're going to try to distance yourself from it, and, you're, and you want to be able to say, I never officially green-lighted it. But am I, am I correct in assuming... Am I correct in my interpretation that you are not going to stand in our way? I am distancing myself from the project from the beginning. But you're not actively opposing it. I'm not actively opposing it because yes. you're right to create yeah. the new game that yes. you want. We showed you, Squall. Whatever. In your face. In I, your face. 